Fam Sway. Cool. No, really, we're cool. Ask us. We'll tell you. No problem. Fandomsway.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of How Inappropriate, the podcast where we ask the question, could this movie be made today? I am your host, Kira Allen, and uh, I am here today along with my good friend, uh, creative partner, uh, who's, he's a writer, he is the, uh, the host of our uh, Friday 100-word challenges. If you haven't seen those over at Phantom Sway and you're a writer, you've got to get over there every Friday. Take the, the Friday Fiction Challenge, write a story about a picture in 100 words, um, and eventually we're to publish a book so kind of a cool way to maybe get your name in print and published anyway i'd like to welcome jimmy bice jimmy welcome to the show so glad you are here kira it's awesome to be here well uh, i'm ready for this i'm so glad i'm so glad um you're a movie lover which i love movie lovers that's what we do here on the podcast we talk about movies but you suggested today's movie that we're going to do. You said it was one of your favorites. So today we are doing the 1985 cult classic Clue. Yay! <laughs> now, I usually ask my guests this. Of course, I already know the answer, but uh, you have seen this movie before. It's a favorite of yours. Uh, is it something that you watch over and over again, or is it just something that you had in your mind for a while and thought this would be a fun opportunity to talk about it? Um. It is it is one of my favorites. It is one of my probably top five movies. Um, it is one of those it is one of those few movies that if you're ever you know when you're sitting around at home and you're flipping through the guide on your you know your digital guide on your TV and you see the movies on you're like ah, all right I'm done this is this is where I stop <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm going to this movie I have probably seen this movie two dozen times Wow. Um, I can quote chunks of the movie. It's funny because in your show prep, you're like, you know, Jimmy, it's always a good idea to get the movie and rewatch it. I'm like, I know this movie. Are you kidding? Rewatch it. You don't have to rewatch it. <laughs> That's great. Oh. But I will tell you that I did. And one of the things I love about this movie is that when you watch it again, you will see things or hear things that you didn't notice the other times. And that is my bottom line rule for a good movie is if the movie can continue to surprise you even after you've seen it a bunch of times. Well, I have to admit to you that I have never seen this movie in its entirety. Uh, so this was a first for me. Um, so we kind of have two different perspectives on this film. We've got the, the person who this is their favorite and you have the newbie. So this should be fun. As I said, it was uh, it was produced in 1985, uh, written by John Landis um, and directed by John Peters, I believe. Let me look. No, here. no, no. The, the the actually the the soundtrack was done by John Morris. Um, and the cool thing about the the cool thing about the soundtrack, and I don't know if you noticed it, did the movie did the music stand out to you? Not not particularly, but I did find some notes about the music. But what is it about the music 
the it's number one, the music is the music is very very cool. It's very evocative. It's it it will put you in the middle of the scene, and especially the la- the two minutes right there toward the end, where Wadsworth, played by Tim Curry, is literally reenacting the entire movie. Right, he a brilliant the, scene. Yes, yes, and it's it's two minutes. I and, did and, notice and that, that. Yeah. Well, the guy John Morris is was a veteran writer, a veteran uh, composer who had worked with Mel Brooks, and was the soundtrack writer for producers. He Springtime and Hitler was partially his. Uh, he did Young Frankenstein, so that big dun dun dun. That's John Morris. Right. And the, the the love theme, the do 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 do. That's John. Mo- that's wow. his. And he also did Blazing Saddles. So like the Blazing Saddles theme was Mel Brooks and John Morris. This guy just worked a ton with John, with, with, and he was double Oscar nominated. And then he appears in like the movie Clue, which you know, but at the time not a real. It, it, it should have been bigger given who all was in it. Yeah, let's talk uh, about awesome. that. Let's talk about that because this <laughs> cast is amazing. By the way, the director was Jonathan Lynn. So John Landis wrote this with Jonathan Lynn um, as well. Uh, so yeah, yeah, Jonathan Lynn, who, by the way, was, uh, was uh, if you like British television, the, the TV show Yes Minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jonathan Lynn was the writer for a lo- like four seasons of that show. And it makes sense. Um, It was reflected, I think, in the screenplay. But this cast, Jimmy, is, I mean, it is a cast to end all casts. I mean, it is a who's who of of comedic and dramatic talent of the 80s. And, and, you know, these people had careers that spanned from the 70s um, all the way up until today for those who are still alive. Unfortunately, some of these cast members have been lost. But we've got Eileen Brennan, who for me, Jimmy, um, I, she, for me, is most memorable in Private Benjamin. Yes. 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 That's how I always remember her. Um, she She's in this, of course, Tim Curry, uh, the great late Madeline Kahn, Christopher Lloyd, Michael McKeon, Martin Mull, Leslie Ann Warren, uh, just uh, Jane Wheatland of the Go-Go's is even in here. Which, yes. Yeah, um, it's just incredible. Leslie Ann Warren, who, by the way, was not really a comedic actor. She was not a comedic actress, really, before Clue. And in Clue, all of a sudden, you're like, wow, she could really be funny. Well, Leslie Ed Warren got her got her start uh, really got her start in Mission Impossible. Um, in the very late sixties, early seventies, um, she came in when Leonard Nimoy was on the show as well. And well, yes. another musical thing for you: the guy who played Mister Body, Lee Ving. Yes. Um, was if you're if you're into the uh, the punk scene in California, he was the front man for the group Fear. And apparently still is. Apparently they're yeah, still yeah, around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he had <laughs> yeah. like almost no acting experience yeah. and he just shows up. Uh, the maid who played Yvette, Colleen Camp, if you look at her if you look at her resume, she is all over the place. In fact, the uh, the Die Hard movie with uh, I think it was Die Hard with a Vengeance, with Jeremy Irons. Yes. Um the police officers who are working with Bruce Willis. Yeah, that's the, right. The woman that's right. That's Colleen Camp. That's right. That's the same woman. Yeah, it, yeah. These yeah, people it, it, all have impressive resumes. 
Yeah, and the and they needed that kind of talent because if you pay attention to the dialogue, or if you look at the screenplay, the the, the dialogue is so slick. It's it's the kind of thing that if it had been produced, if it had been produced fifteen years later, twenty years later. Um, it would have been the kind of thing like, oh, that's a J.J. Abrams kind of thing. Yeah, I, you know, it's really interesting because as I was watching this, and, and let, let's just set up this movie for anybody who's listening who doesn't know what it is, and it's a real easy setup. It's a movie based on the board game Clue. <laughs> that's it. Right. Um, yeah. Pretty simple. Um, takes place in 1954, somewhere in New England in a, in a large mansion. Um, but... That was the thing I noticed as I was watching this, that the, the, the pacing is so masterful. This, this really is a masterpiece. It's kind of amazing that it, it, it flopped at the box office, but when you compare it against the films that it was up against, it's not hard to see that it probably was going to have a hard time, even if it had been, you know, the best movie, the yeah. most well-produced movie ever. That was a big movie year. Yeah. So, but it was, <laughs> as I was listening to the dialogue and listening to the pace, especially as you mentioned, Jimmy, that last scene where we wrap it all up with Tim Curry racing from room to room and, and recapping the plot, I thought, you know, this movie sounds like a play. It sounds like it was written as a stage play. And then I come to find out that they had originally approached uh, famous playwright Tom Stoppard to write this this film. And that made sense, too. I I wondered... Well, watch, Kira, watch where it takes place. You you say that the setup is right. It's in a giant mansion. Mm -hmm. Because you get to see an exterior shot of the mansion... But you see people at the front door, but the movie mostly takes place in like four rooms. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask it, you. It's Jimmy. literally it's built like a stage play. It, the, the whole big the whole big thing kind of basically takes place in that that big entranceway hallway in, on the first floor. Uh, that could easily be a stage set. Could well, it super made me, easily be a stage set. It made me wonder if this might have found its own kind of success as a stage play. If that had been, I know people have staged it since, but if that had been its original form, if it might have found, you know, like a cat's kind of like success uh, just because of that reason. Yeah. I mean, the location was perfect for it. It's like, it's one location, which is a house, you know, and, and different rooms. I mean, yeah, it was great. It was set up like that. The dialogue was very snappy, very, and, and that's another thing that I think people, maybe it's hard for people to appreciate the level of performances in a movie like this, because in order to pull that off as actors, you, A, you have to be working as an ensemble and B, you've got to be really experienced. So, you know, when your line comes in, you know how to keep that pace going. A lot of actors, will tend to um, try to milk the most out of their lines because acting is a very uh, selfish career and it's something that, that makes you, you have to be introspective. So a lot of people try to milk their lines, but in a storyline like this, you've got to be a very generous actor. You've got to be really in tune with your castmates. These people were clearly all pros. I mean, Martin Mole is... Is he's not a household name in in this day and age, but he is probably one of the um, best comedic actor and comedians of his era. 
And he has the he's kind of the comedian's comedian. He's one of those guys yeah. that like comedians study. Uh, and and you might know him, listeners, as you're listening to this podcast, as um, you might remember him from Roseanne's first show. Uh, as she, he was her boss, he was her mm-hmm. gay boss, which was a big deal at the time. Um, yeah, he was. I mean, just everybody right down the line is well, amazing. Uh, the other thing is, if you look at if you look at these actors, um, a couple of them, Martin Mull for one. Uh, had experience, a lot of experience, um, either doing ensemble comedy, Michael McKeon, the same thing. Michael McKeon and um, and and Martin Mull um, were comedic, part of a comedic ensemble, but all the other actors were mostly ensemble actors. None of them were big headliner actors, so they were used to working with that type of relationship where you could put... Um, Instead of like one ten bell actor and a bunch of sixes, you could put a bunch of seven and a halfs and eights together, right? And make an amazing movie. But but we have not mentioned the coolest part of the movie yet. What's that? When you watched the movie, did you notice how there were three different endings? Well, yes, of course. At the end. Well yes. So if you watch the movie now, at the end, you'll get an ending, and then they'll like they'll be, or it could have happened this way. And then basically what you get is the last five minutes of the movie with a completely different ending, a a different because it's clue, by the way, one of the nods to the board game is that Tim Curry at one point, like the first half of the movie says, remember, you know, we're here to 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 we're here to figure out um, who killed Mr. Body with what and where. Right. And you're like. In, in the movie, like, if that were a real situation, you're like, no, you don't have to figure out any of those things. You really don't. Right. But, like, this is clearly the movie. So, yes, yes, you do, which is why you stay around doing stupid things. But, so, you have these three different endings where there are three different murders. Now, when the movie was originally released to theaters, they released three different versions of the movie. Which I think is so clever. Yeah, so they I sent out to all these theaters three different versions of the movie. So you could go to a theater on one side of town and watch one version of the movie with one ending, go to the other side of town to another theater and see a completely different ending. I think that that was so such a clever idea, and I wonder if something like that would float today in today's day and age. I think it would. I think it would. I think it would be a great marketing trick to bring people back. To the theater to purchase yeah. another ticket. I, I, I do too, especially if. But the, the see the thing about this movie was that it wasn't really kind of a blockbuster, and to that point, people really weren't used to going to movies based on board games. I mean, nowadays the, the Battleship. I mean, come on. But you know, back then it was like, wait, you're making a movie of Clue, and you've got all these comedic people in it, and. Why again? But it wasn't until it like it hit home video and people could rent it that it really became that classic that people love to watch. And and the other thing I like about it is depending on most people like a, a comedy of a certain brand, like they like verbal comedy or they like um, recurring jokes. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, a joke that just keeps happening over and over again, mm-hmm. or they like like physical comedy. Clue literally has all of those things. 
Yes. Yes. There are there are like five or six different standing jokes that they set up in the very beginning. Like the uh, what Tim Curry says, uh, to make a long story short, in, in, in the very beginning, Michael uh-huh. McKean's character, Mr. Reed, says too late. That joke gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It happens like four times in the movie. It I keeps happening. It I gets have, bigger. I do have a note in here about that. And I think that it it denotes some very sophisticated writing. And, Hugely uh, sophisticated let's, writing. Let's start out from the beginning here. Um, I like to go through these things chronologically. Okay. Um, and uh, it just opens up on a dark and stormy night, and we see all of these characters making their way to the to the mansion. They've received a mysterious invitation to a dinner party, and we see Tim Tim Curry. He's the butler um, arriving at the the mystery mansion. Um, and uh, we see boobs pretty early on. That's Colleen Camp playing the maid, Yvette, but, uh, which Jonathan uh, or John Landis said uh, that he, at, at the end of the day, he cast her for those boobs. <laughs> she was a very accomplished a lot, actress. A, a lot of people, but early on in her career, a lot of people cast her for the boobs. You'll see a lot of like summer camp horror movies. Well, they were pretty impressive, I have to say. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and grounds for many, many jokes in this movie. Uh, but I, you know, I can't blame them. She really, they, her rack was, it was I impressive. Guess, yeah, it was back in the day. Every I live in Orange County, you know, and everything's so plastic. <laughs> you know, I'm used, used yes. to seeing plastic boobs that look like they are so, like, hard, just, like, not very... No. Uh, to me, to my eyes, anyway, and I'm just well, her, a straight woman. Leslie, but. Leslie Ann Warren also. Oh, she not. I have. I do have this in my show notes. I mean, Leslie Ann Warren for me was sex in a movie. Yes. Like every, yes. I just remember seeing her in so many '80s movies, and she every role she just oozed the sultriness that you that I didn't really see from other female leads. Or even, um, you know, co-stars in films. And every time I've seen Leslie Ann Warren in something, I have thought, oh my gosh, she is so sexy. Like, this must be what a sexy woman is like, you know? Uh, So it was really daring, by the way, to, I mean, she had, like, just a couple years before, she had been in a movie called Portrait of a Showgirl. mm Mm-hmm. Right. Um, she was uh, uh, like a, a strip club dancer in another movie. She she literally was playing these sexy roles and all of a sudden, boom, hard comedy, like hard comedy acting next to Christopher Lloyd and Martin Mull and nailing it. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry, but I cut no. you off from the chronology. Now. No, 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 that's fine. Absolutely. This is worthy of it. Leslie Ann Warren is, I mean, was and is, I guess, is she still working? I guess. Uh, You know know. something? I've I've got, I've got, yes, she's in, she's in four movies that are in post-production right now. Look at that. Look at that. (laughs) You go, girl. Well, she was definitely a stone cold fox in this movie. Um, And, but just to go back to this conversation we were having about the jokes and the through lines, one of the first places I noticed that was the dog poop joke. So yes. Tim Curry, there's dogs guarding that just for anyone who just catch anyone else up on the on the chronology of the movie. Tim Curry is obviously on his way into the mansion to set up this dinner. There's 
rabid dogs outside so he throws them some meat and in this funny little moment you know he steps in some dog poop you know tries to scrape it off his shoe and he comes in the house and then every person who greets him kind of takes that moment to sniff the air and check their own shoes which is what you totally do when you step when someone is in the room who stepped in dog poop it's like you can never identify where it comes from and that's and that's the brilliance the brilliance is if one or two people do it yes right if one or two people do it, you know, uh-huh. the f- everybody, everybody, every did single it. guest went through, and by by like the second to last one, you're waiting for it, and when it happens, it's funny. I think what I I wrote here in my notes, um, this is something that isn't afforded audiences these days. Everything no. has to be explained to us. And right. so everything has to be obvious. So it's like movies don't trust us to be patient enough. You know, like movies can't be patient enough to hold out for these jokes, to bring them back. And, and, and I don't know, this might just be a taste thing, too, because this is kind of my taste in comedy. But I, I just love the fact that it, it trusted us enough to, um, to follow along with that joke. And it didn't well, lead us by the lines, nose. Along those lines, Kira, along those lines, you have something else going on. Because because if you take the comedy aspect out of this, which is uh, it really tough to do, but think about it. Take this comedy aspect out. You've got a bunch of strangers who assemble at an old mansion. They're isolated because of the thunders, because of the bad road conditions, because of the dogs outside. They're isolated, right? They have one person kind of acting as host. That is your basic British murder mystery setup. Right. And as the movie really gets started and Tim Curry is kind of doing some of the masterminding, basically Tim Curry is playing like the Agatha Christie master detective role, the the Poirot, the Marple, the whatever, the person who's there who's kind of leading everybody through the mystery. So on one hand, you've got a comedy and they're hitting you with these jokes. But on the other hand, they are they are hit like the, at the dinner scene. They're hitting you with clues. That will make more sense later once you get a little more information about how these people are related, if they're related, in what ways they're related, and it all bears into the murders that happen later. This is a basic, like a, an old classic British murder mystery setup that you don't quite realize you're getting until it's everybody's at the dinner table and you're like, well, wait a minute, I thought this was a comedy. Yeah, well, it is, but it's also a murder mystery. See? So. I thought, see, what I thought about, and you're absolutely right, but what I thought about was how this setup is so much like a horror movie. My first Mm. thought was um, House on Haunted Hill. Yes. Uh, where you put a bunch of people in a mansion, you only have, there's only one person who knows what going what's going on, and everyone has to figure out how they get out of there alive. <laughs> well, know? and there are shots, and there are shots that do that. And for example, I, I want to skip ahead a little bit. But Go ahead. Yeah. When they get to the point in the movie where everybody, where they split up in pairs and they're searching, right? Yeah. There's a scene in which um, Martin Mull, Martin Mull's character, Martin Mull plays Colonel Mustard. And uh, Leslie Ann Warren plays Miss Scarlet, which, by the way, just as a side note, it is incredibly clever that they managed to write character backstories for all these characters who in the game really didn't have characters. Yeah. But they managed to do it in a way that um, also alluded to their aliases. 
because all the in the in the movie all the names they go by here are aliases. Right. Right. So Miss Scarlet, who runs a bordello, and Colonel Mustard, who was taking skimming war supplies. Right. Yeah. So anyway, Colonel Colonel Mustard and Miss Scarlet split up, and Miss Scarlet is checking the uh, conservatory, and you see a shot of the drapes and, and it's going back and forth between a shot of her face and a shot of the drapes. And then you see the drapes move and she kind of goes, ah, ah. yes, <laughs> a couple people do that by the way, because miss white does that when the power yeah. goes out and it is, is Madeline Khan. It is one of the funniest things in the whole movie. She was really, um, well, she the, was very now, talented. Yeah. The cool Miss Scarlet thing is she's walking toward the drapes, right? And as she's walking, normally you'd expect her to be in the center of the frame, right? Yeah. They shoot her to the right-hand side of the frame with this big open space, and as she's moving toward you, she's moving out of focus. So you literally expect someone to loom up in the big open space that the director has left for you. Yeah, I... Except nobody does. (laughs) I've been there, too, you know, where you're like, I'm so scared to look behind this this drape. I know for sure there's someone there. they put you there. They put you there that as you're watching her approach the drape, they leave that open space so that you expect maybe a, the murderer to come up behind her, but it never happens. So you're, they're, they set up all these. Uh, the other thing about the host, you'll meet the host later. The host, right? They set up all these horror expectations, mm-hmm. and and when they pay off, they pay off in comedy. Right. They pay off in funny. Which means that you're you're getting scared, and then you're laughing to release attention, and then you're getting scared again. So sometimes your laughter is laughter, and sometimes your laughter is nervous laughter. It's really good filmmaking. Yeah, this is actually very good filmmaking. I have to say, I was surprised about that aspect of this. Um, let's let's uh, move along in the plot a little bit, just a little bit. Um, everybody gets to the house. We see all all we meet all our characters. Um, everyone sits down to dinner together and there's, as you've already said, there's one empty chair at the table, which Tim Curry, our butler, is, who's Wadsworth, is saying, oh, our host will be here shortly. And um, all, all the uh, characters get ready for, I actually have one inappropriate moment before we started here. It's when Just Les, one? Yeah, well, yeah. You're not talking about the entire inappropriate moment where Martin Mull basically stares at Colleen Camp's boobs the whole time he's <laughs> In the study where everybody else is joining up. <laughs> yeah. That's literally that's Martin well, Mosley's <laughs> deliver a line and they go back and stare right at yes. her chest. I I love the I love that. But there was also so much else going on yes. in that scene. But um yeah, well this was the first one I noticed, I'll say that. Uh <laughs> um Leslie Ann Warren and Michael McKean or not Michael McKean, um Did she arrive with Colonel Mustard? No, she arrived with Professor Plum. She, Professor her car Plum, was broken down to Professor Plum pick up. Who Christopher was Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd. Christopher um, Lloyd. And then he touches her rump as they enter, and I just have, oh, look, uh, Leslie Ann Warren got hashtag me too'd already. <laughs> you know, well, and the right what's away. great thing about that is that you couldn't do that today, even though, if you notice this, every single time that happens to her, she fires back. <laughs> She does, but I think if you made that moment today, it would have to be way more empowering. You could make it, but then it would have to be a moment where she, like, 
stabs him in the stomach or punches him out or flips right, him over, right. you know, like some real strong female empowerment moment. Like they, they wouldn't be able to just kind of let that moment sit. It would have to mean something. I think right. if you made it, it, it today. would have to be significant. Yeah. Right. Right. We have to be saying something about the character. And I think, you know, in a way they could get away with that kind of stuff because the film is set in 1954. So your expectations, I suppose, are a little different. But And it wasn't a big deal, but it was just one thing I noticed. And then the other thing I noticed is when they were walking into dinner, Eileen Brennan, who was Mrs. Peacock, had a fox shawl on. And I thought, oh, <laughs> yes. PETA would be <laughs> protesting that movie well, today. And- and monkey brains, and while monkey brains popular in eat, Cantonese cooking. While popular in Cantonese cooking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But, but the thing is, that comes up later. With the, the, the great thing is that if you've watched the movie again, the first time, right? When you go back and watch the movie again, the first time she eats it, she takes a bite of it, right? And she says, oh, this is my favorite. And Wadsworth, it's just a turnaway line as he's turning away from her food and says, I know. Yeah, I re- I did notice that at the beginning, and I was like, hmm, yeah. well, how does he know? It just every, yeah, mm-hmm. that's the 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 dinner scene simply exists to let you know that there's all manner of weirdness happening. Yes, that you may or may not learn about later. Everybody's it's, 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 yes, it's designed to get you to pay attention. Everybody's sitting together. They're just they're they're all they all realize they're they're all under aliases. So yes. then they're trying to figure out well how do we get to know each other without really getting to know each other there's this great little moment where miss white played by madeline Kahn, and i believe professor plum slurp their soup and everyone else is looking at them but jimmy technically slurping the soup is the proper way to eat soup right yes you're not supposed to put the whole spoon in your mouth the way americans do you know honestly (laughs) it should be our way but but you know right (laughs) it should be you know did you um we haven't we haven't gotten there i wanted there was an inappropriate moment <laughs> the probably the, mo- the the most inappropriate moment in a series of inappropriate moments when everybody goes back to the study uh-huh and Is he's revealing the all end? the blackmails yeah let's hold off on that yes okay yeah okay so let's see um oh i think mrs peacock she was blabbing on and on and on and then we, we we get to know that Professor Plum is like a, a psycholo- professor of psychology, uh, a doctor of psychology, uh, because he analyzes her, Mrs. Peacock's need to blab in silence. Right. He calls that uh, he calls that the pressure of speech. And I thought, oh God, that's me. I can't stand to sit in a silent room. I always have to start talking, which is probably why I have a podcast because I always have to be talking. I can't stand for people to be awkwardly sitting in silence. Right. <laughs> I thought that was. And was she's like, also oh, and she's also dealing with like she's the one who's most nervous about being there. Right. She's she's nervous about the whole the whole blackmail thing. Right. And she's so she's the most nervous about being there. Yes. And then we have Mr. Body, which I thought was hilarious. I was like, oh, Mr. Body, <laughs> he's here. We know what's going to happen to him. Um, he comes in, of course, as you said, that was the, that is the leaving the uh, first, the singer, excuse me, lead singer of the band Fear. 
Um, and then Wadsworth locks all the doors and locks everyone in. And I thought, oh, my God, this house is a fire code violation. No one can get out. This is horrible. I actually used to go to a school in Washington, D.C., where they locked us in. And now I think, how did oh. we get away with that? Yeah, they used to chain the doors when, um, when, school, when the bell rung. I don't know how they got away with it. Anyways. I, you know something? You could do a lot of things in school when we were in school. Sure, you're that right. you really can't do now at all. That is so true. <laughs> just, there's literally, there's no chance you could get away doing some of the things that, you know, right? that, that they did to us in school. That just, it wouldn't happen. Oh, my God. I, I, had a, uh, I had a substitute teacher named Mrs. Cousins. We called her Colonel Clink because she was so tough. She was, like, old. She was maybe like 75, so she was super old school, and this would have been in the 80s and 90s, and she used to, um, if you had your feet out from under your desk, she would stomp on your foot, and if you, if you didn't have your hands either folded or writing, she would smack your hands with a ruler. I mean, you could never do that today. Yeah, we. I had a similar. I had a similar teacher, Miss Hornbaker, when I was in junior high school, um, who missed a couple years. It was also kind of the running thing because she had a lot of kids. If she would miss like the first couple months of school because she was out on maternity leave and having a baby, um, but then she came in and she was a good teacher. But she was super, super, super strict. Super. Oh super yeah. Strict. I can't. I got stories living in Orange County. I got stories about <laughs> teachers that can't do anything in their classrooms nowadays. The the, the fight. The uh, parents come down on them hard. But anyways, I did notice that. Anyway, uh, Wadsworth reveals the instructions. He he reveals everybody's been gathered there on purpose for some mysterious reason, and he reveals that everyone in the room is being blackmailed by someone. And dun, dun, dun. yes, and uh, Dr. Plum talks about how he now this was interesting, Jimmy. There's a lot of United Nations jokes in this film. Yes. And Dr. Yes. Plum that um, he, he says that he worked with people who were were clinically insane and had delusions of grandeur. And now he works at the United Nations. So not much different. I laughed so hard. But that joke carries through the whole film. They're always making you end jokes in the film. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's 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 also it's 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 also great because he call he never calls it the UN. He always calls it the UNO, the United Nations Organization. Oh. So it's always yeah, it's always kind of that little dot. It's not much of a dodge, but it's yeah, it's always a kind of thing. There are a lot of political jokes, and there are a lot of communist jokes. Yeah, there's a lot of we, political jokes. As but as we learn at the end of the movie, communism is a this red, is red herring. herring. <laughs> which is a, which is a funny joke because communism red. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> See, there was a lot of that stuff that was just kind of slapstick. Well, I did read, you know, um, Professor Plum. He also. He didn't work for the UN organization directly. He worked for the World Health Organization. And so all that works out to spell you know who. Right. Which I was like, yeah. (laughs) I was like, oh, these guys. I bet they were cracking themselves up when they were writing this. But it did make me wonder. Now, there are a few. um, This is 1954, so it's McCarthyism era. There's quite a few jokes about 
McCarthyism, about communism, that it's a red herring and that and almost the way they referred to it as a red herring seemed tongue in cheek and there are there are jokes about the United Nations and I was wondering if there was sometimes we do movies on the show and you you know that some of the things that they're writing and talking about are a direct result of the political climate at the time and I was trying to think about 1985 and how these jokes would have played in 1985 I guess I guess we were still smarting from the era of McCarthyism and we were still talking about it in film and we were still in the Cold War so I guess that all played to you know our obsession with communism I don't know what do you think about that I think that when they went to the communism as a red herring joke I think they were making it do two things. And, and since we've already kind of agreed that they're very, they were very clever writers in this movie, that we can kind of extend some, a little more cleverness to that. Number one, I think they were every bit trying to play up that role. If you recall the blackmail, you know, Tim Curry almost overacting about how his wife, remember his wife committed suicide because right. it was it was found out that she was friends with socialist and everybody's right, like yes. oh my god yes right and and now and, but here's how they play up the socialism thing right here's how they play it up so michael mckean's character then stands up and says oh i'm just going to tell you what my horrible secret is i work for the state department and i am a homosexual yes and if they found out they would be fired for security reasons right yes and literally no one says anything yeah and he just looks around and he's like, okay then. <laughs> so they're literally playing it up that knowing socialists at that period of time in the 50s was worse than being gay. magnitude worse than being gay. Yes. <laughs> right? So they, they play that up. Um, and, they, and then, by the way, all these subsequent jokes about his character being gay. Yes. All go into the inappropriate bucket. All of them. Oh, every last every one. Every single one. Yeah. But yeah. So I think I think they they played it up, and then when they were like communism is a red herring, they were like, yeah, because we knew you'd be totally focused in on that. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, yeah, the okay. end really yeah. doesn't uh-huh. mean a thing. Yeah. It I was actually surprised that for a movie in 1985, they didn't manage to work in, a, even though they were it was supposed to be. Now, see, here's the funny thing: if you didn't know in the setup that the movie took place in 1954. Yeah. Then you wouldn't know in the movie that it took place in 1954. Right. There weren't a lot of references. Yeah. Right. It it could have taken place in 1985 for all that. Um, But so, yeah, I think the the comments, I, I think they had a lot of opportunities to make to, to to kind of nail some uh, to nail some political points, mm-hmm. and they just they kind of didn't. I mean, it was it was terrible that someone knew socialists, but in the end, like he was a war profiteer, and that was even worse, you know. And then, so they had all these chances to make these points, and then they just kind of. They didn't, didn't, yeah. That's what surprised me. Because they were me. too busy telling jokes. Yes, that's what surprised <laughs> me. I thought. And maybe that's because I'm, I'm conditioned now in 2018 for that, you know, everything is, is 
politics. Everything is political yes. these days. So maybe I'm so, so conditioned, trouble. yeah, that I thought that they were going to start hitting me over the head with this, but then it just it kind of all was a red herring. Anyways, it might not be interesting to anybody else, but to me, I found that really fascinating that it didn't take it much further than that. And I and oh, so I was curious to hear Hoover. your thoughts. Right. Same, same with, with all the Hoover stuff. Right. Yeah. They make they make a couple obvious jokes mm-hmm. and then they pass over it. Yeah. Even though J, the J. Edgar Hoover part is a significant clue yeah. in the movie Clue. <laughs> It, it meant something. They're like, yeah, we're not really going to do anything with it. We're just going to say it was dead Gruber, and then we're going to kill the policeman, and then we're going to go on. Yeah. Well, we did. We did kill a lot of people. They this, this, movie. Movie. this movie killed a lot of people more, Way more, more than, than I expected. Expect. <laughs> yes. well, and, and this is, I think, this by the way is good writing. Yes. Because you realize the movie Clue, you have one person, right? So if you just kill Mister Body early on, apparently twice. Um, if you do that, then you have to pad up the rest of the red time, or the rest of the runtime, with walking around figuring out who did it, and right. that's going to get boring. Right. So, uh, bring in a passing motorist and a policeman and a singing telegram girl, and have all them get shot. But then, in the end, literally everybody's connected. Yeah, I it was very clever. I agree. Um, they so they uh let's see well where we were we find out that michael mckeon is a homosexual which is not nearly as disgusting as being a socialist and then everyone gets their weapons so the uh, their weapons have been mysteriously delivered to them and everyone opens you know and there's a candlestick there's everything that's in the game a gun a, a noose um and Mrs. Peacock freaks out because she thinks she's um, maybe drank some poison. She drinks a, her brandy, which was is exactly what I would be doing. I, and, I had to stop her screaming. Yes, and he slapped her, and I thought, oh boy, this is another thing that we can we can't slap hysterical women today in movies. No, but, but then it, every, it gets it, even it worse. It does so much <laughs> in the re, in the reenactment when Tim Curry is behind her screaming and, oh, and she's screaming. <laughs> Max her again? <laughs> oh my God, this but you know so what? It, it, remind, it reminded me of Jimmy as like in the eighties. I started thinking of all these other movies where I saw women getting slapped as comedy, and like Airplane, all the Airplane movies. Right. Any movie with Leslie Nielsen in it basically is going to have a woman getting slapped in the eighties. It's like so common, and I don't know. We didn't even think about it back then, but now we'll be like, you could not do it. You could not. Well, but see, here's the other thing. Do you remember who slaps her? Mike. The first time is Michael McKeon. Yeah. Right. Because he's, he's gay. The, the, <laughs> yeah. the gay guy <laughs> slapping the woman. So, uh-huh. and, but then in the reenactment, not only does Wadsworth slap her, he he chases. <laughs> he chases Michael McKeon's character. It's one of my favorite scenes. He picks up the knife, runs down the hall, and just. And then just clubs Michael McKean in the back of the head. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a really good scene. And we're going to talk oh, about that Tim scene. Curry gets, and, and Tim Curry gets hit in the head, too. Yeah. That whole thing was, was brilliant. 
Uh, but I did notice, yes, that it was the gay guy that slapped Mrs. Peacock. Yeah. So I'm like, well, maybe he could get away with it. Um, and then we find out that the cook is dead. We find the cook, she falls out of the, the meat locker. And uh, there's a really funny line in there. Who said this? I have it written down. Um, somebody said, we we better close this before the flies come around and... Mrs. White says flies are where men are most vulnerable. <laughs> I just... right. she, and she says it to Martin Moe. <laughs> yes, so, by the way, before that, <laughs> the cook so is funny. on the ground with a knife in her back, yeah. right? And Martin Moe said, Martin Moe is, <laughs> and, and, and Colonel Mustard says, nobody touch this is evidence. And he literally grabs it with his hand and then lets go. Yeah, and then the woman are like, well, it doesn't matter. Nobody touch it, this is evidence. He, he grabs it and then lets it go. It was really oh, slapstick. I want to step back. If you go back and listen to it, when the light squat in Mr. Body is killed, allegedly, the first time, mm-hmm. if you listen, he gives out six things, right? The candlestick, the dagger, the pipe, the revolver, the rope, the wrench. You hear them all being used. Oh, you I didn't really notice that. A stab, you hear a choking sound and a gunshot. I heard the gunshot and I thought they must have to use the gunshot because otherwise it would be ruled out. But I didn't listen for the other things. I was listening so intently for the gunshot. Right, but that, but if you go you listen, you'll hear all the other uh, you'll hear the other noises. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, it's <laughs> And then we find out that Mr. Body isn't exactly dead we hear a screech from the other room and he's all over i guess is it mrs peacock she's gone to find a drink or do something um so he basically gets weekend weekend at bernie'd uh just he's kind of like a walking corpse they kill oh, him you all mean when she, when she leaves the room and she finds him yeah no she goes to the she goes to it's another great joke she asked she said she's she wants to go powder her nose so she asks Yvette, um, where is the, the she, says, room, is, yeah. she says, is the ladies room in the hallway? And Yvette looks at her and says, wee oui, wee. Oui. And she goes, no, no, I just want to powder my yes. nose. <laughs> I thought I giggled. The other great, the other great line. It's such a, it's such a stupid joke, but it made me laugh. What Wadsworth, what, <laughs> Colonel Mustard's looking at Wadsworth and he's basically says, who are you? And Wadsworth says, I'm merely a humble, humble butler. And Colonel Mustard says, what exactly do you do? And Wadsworth says, I buckle, sir. Yes, I actually thought that was real. <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe buttling is a real thing. But <laughs> no, no, it was a joke. <laughs> he made, he sold it. He sold it. It is, it is, it is 100%. Just Tim Curry. Tim just, Curry is the best. He is wonderful. He really, what a talent that man was. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the whole cast really, but... Even yes. watching Tim Curry work in this movie, I just thought, oh, this is a study in just real discipline as an actor. He must have been a joy to work with. He, the the he great was, thing is everybody gets, everybody gets kind of like a little spotlight line. Yeah. A little bit of spotlight cleverness, which is really great. Yes. Uh, so everybody is, you're absolutely right. Um, and they all 
could pull it off because the cast was so amazing. Sorry to keep bringing that up, folks, but it really was a well, great no, there's cast. There's another yeah. a great line, another a, a, a Madeline Kahn line, better than the flames on the side of my face, which yes. is maybe the most quoted line in the movie. And she um, ad-libbed that. Yes, and she's just, he, he had heaving, heaving breaths. But there's another line where, where Wadsworth is talking about the, uh, about her husband dying, right? And um, and she mentions that now that her second her husband second her husband is dead, she has a life. And Wadsworth says, "But he was your second husband. Your first husband also disappeared." And she said, "But that was his job. He was an illusionist." And Wadsworth, <laughs> says, and Wadsworth says, "But he never reappeared." And she says, "He wasn't a very good illusionist." <laughs> there were so many great one-liners in here. It really was done quite well. Uh, let's let's move a little forward yes. in the plot here. Um, they decide that they need to. The, the stranger shows up. There's a, a stranger who comes to the door. His car's broken down. He asks to use the phone. They lock him in the room with the phone, <laughs> and they now they've got they've got two dead bodies. They've got Mister Body and they've got the cook. And so now things are starting to fall apart. And this is where the physical comedy really starts to ramp up here. And it gets really funny. It gets really entertaining really quickly. Um, and they draw straws to search the house. And they they pair off. And yeah. I loved this whole segment of this movie because it was so hilarious to watch each of... Because nobody knew who the killer was. So... Each of them were like, well, maybe you're the killer. You know, maybe you're the killer. So to watch each of these pairs work, trying to find the killer while simultaneously trying to avoid, like, looking away from their partner, trying to (laughs) stick very close to their partner so that they don't get murdered. There's just all kinds of um, really funny physical moments in there like Leslie Ann Warren and Martin Mull um, climbing up the the stairs, or yeah, and then the the maid and um, who is she with? Professor? No, no, the, the maid, she's the gay guy. At, yeah, the, yes, those two guys are yeah. together, and they're, they're, and they're trying they're, to go to the they're stairs. They're squeezing up like, the stairway. Like, I'll go. Yeah, I'll go behind <laughs> you. And he's like, "That's what I'm afraid of." Yes. Yeah, and it's like everything is so. I thought that was so much fun. That whole concept. And they all split off to search the house in different parts. And this is when we find out, much like the board game, that there are secret passageways. So in the board game, I don't know if you recall, but you can take secret passageways to get you to a room quicker. And so in the movie, there were those same passageways that were being discovered. It was kind of fun. I was like, oh, I'd like to play hide and seek in this place. Yes. Except there's a crazed killer, which, and that, by the way, is where you get the scene with Miss Scarlet and the misdirection camera work, and the also the great the great comedy line where where um they find where the killer sneaks into the conservatory through the passage, kills the guy, the motorist. Yes, now that the, the and, stranger that showed up at the door is murdered. Now right, he's dead too. He's so murdered. Three he's bodies killed with now. The, he's yeah. killed with a pipe wrench. Yes. Um. Yes, and we're up to three bodies. And so Miss Scarlet and uh, Colonel Mustard start screaming. And everybody else comes running down. And they realize that they're locked in because, well, he locked the door with the key. So you get this, this almost this wonderful madcap comedy movement 
where where people are standing outside and they're standing inside, and they're like and like open the door and they can't open the door it's locked, and 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 so the people outside are yelling let us in let us in and the, and the two inside are yelling let us out let us out and Yvette yeah. shows up having gone into the study and gets the revolver. And she yells, I will shoot the lock. And two guys outside hit the deck. She shoots. And then she shoots again. And you hear Martin Ball going, I'm shot. I, I've been shot. <laughs> from the inside. And they finally get it open. And literally after like two minutes, you're like, what the hell just happened here? <laughs> and, then, and then it calms down, right? And he literally telegraphs the joke about the chandelier. I can't take another shock. And the chandelier crashes behind him. I really thought it was going to hit him. I really thought it was going to fall on him. <laughs> I was like, oh, and this is how Colonel Mustard dies. And then we eliminate him. That was very fun. And then, the, but yeah, she, that was a really great, another great example of pacing and how masterful it was. I know yes. on, on this show we usually talk we talk a lot about bad movies, but the last few movies I've done have been really good, and this is one of them. This movie just was really brilliantly paced, and that's another example of great pacing. Um, I usually Jimmy when we when I do these older movies, I like to play spot the black guy. So um, in this movie, well he, here he comes. Here he it's comes. He didn't. He didn't. <laughs> he didn't get there till three quarter till the third act, but. He he's there. It was a cop. The cop was black. So there we go, folks. The black cop yep. came in the the third half, the the final third of the movie. Um, his name is Bill Henderson, by the way. I looked him up, and he did because I recognized him. I thought so. He did City Slickers. He was in My Name Is Earl, um, and then he just did a lot of you know. Um, TV shows here and there over the years. Unfortunately, he passed away in 2016. But uh, thank you, Bill Henderson, for being the black guy and for playing Spot the Black Guy on How Inappropriate. You win. Um, but yeah, so the the cop shows up, and now we've got three dead bodies to, to hide. So they lock him in another room. He gets a mysterious call from... J. Edgar Hoover. J. Edgar Hoover. And then he's like, well, the first, this is the first thing is he's standing there and he's like, well, do you mind if I use your phone? Well, and they have the thing where he's asking the questions, right? And, 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 uh, Michael McKean's character, he's answering them all honestly. And then everyone else is contradicting him immediately. <laughs> right. That was funny. That was funny. Like, is everything all right? No. <laughs> yes. And it was, so it was like, can I use your phone? Yes. Use the phone in the, uh, no, in the, because now he's ticking off rooms where they have dead bodies. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is what I loved. My favorite part and the creepiest part is, yes. is the cop asks to search the other rooms and they've got to come up with ways to hide these dead bodies. And so they basically pull a weekend at Bernie's and Miss White's making out with the motorist or, or, or making out with um, Mr. Body and... Yeah, it's just like they've got the motorist sitting up in the chair. Yeah, like Colonel Mustard's making out with the cook. Yeah, it's like... Yeah, Mr. Like Mr. Body was drunk. Like yes. Christopher Lloyd, like Professor Plum and Miss Scarlet were making out. And yeah. no, it was the motorist who was... Uh, uh, the motorist who was in the chair drunk because they poured liquor all over him. I and, love it though. The cop was like, this man looks drunk. And they're like, yeah, dead drunk. Yes. <laughs> And everybody kind of gives that knowing look. Uh, I I love it. I we did weekend at Bernie's 
on the show. So, listeners, if you haven't heard that one, if you want to talk about a highly inappropriate movie, it's that movie. Go back and find that episode. It is very inappropriate. Uh, anyway, needless to say, the uh, the cop dies. <laughs> now we've got four dead bodies. The cop is dead, and then the maid dies. Um, well, the cop, the cop also is part of... Um, in my opinion, one of the, one of the better, one, one of the better things where the cops in the locked door. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like, so he's, so he locks the door, right. The cop, um, after he gets the call, he starts banging off the door or banging on the door. Right. And he's like, let me out. You gotta let me out. You, you have the right to shut me in here. I'll book you all for like false arrest and wrongful imprisonment and, and obstruction and, 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 and murder. And the door immediately opens <laughs> and Terrence Watcher was going, what do you mean, murder? murder. It's like I just said it so you'd open the door. <laughs> it was like, it was very. And everybody else was like, it was great. And uh, then he dies. Then he because dies. He gets killed because yeah. in a horror movie. Well, let me just say, no, he yeah, he wasn't the first to die. Not the first. Not the first. And he was the only black guy, so there weren't others. So, yeah, he was the only minority. So, but uh, right. yeah, you know. It's a dinner, right? I, and since we've already mentioned this movie, in Weekend at Bernie's, the only black people to show up in that movie were uh, in the background. So they didn't even bother to like make a maid black or anything in that movie. The black people just didn't exist. So, <laughs> so by the way, the, the cop is also there's also a great in that same scene. Um, Colonel Mustard asks Wadsworth, he goes, why is Jedgar Hoover on your phone, right? Yes. And Wadsworth says, I don't know, he's on everybody else's, why shouldn't he be yes, on mine? I love it. And you're like, that is the one Jedgar Hoover joke you could really make and then just keep going. Yeah, yeah. I, right, I, so, I was actually so surprised. Yeah. Though, right? Now we're up to four, and the, ma- the we've got the motorist. Is that the point at which they start stacking them in the library? Uh, yes, because the maid, they find the maid, she's been murdered, and then it's quite clear that it's somebody in the group, and that the right. maid is part of this conspiracy somehow, and she's and been Yvette silenced. And is the one that we really kind of get to see, yeah. because she's actually, there's an right. actual dialogue. The other ones, there's maybe a little bit of something, but in this one, you actually can hear the murderer's voice. It's disguised, but it's a little bit of a clue. Yes, and... Um, then the doorbell rings and there's a Jesus freak at the door trying to give them some literature on, on religion. Played, played by. Played by, I didn't know his name, but he was from WKRP, right? Yes. That, yes. What's his name? Do you remember? Yes, he was, he played the immortal, he was also in another television show that I'll admit I might have watched a few times, um, uh, Head of the Class. Jeffrey Kramer. No. Oh, Howard Hessman. Howard Hessman. Yeah, Howard Hessman. He played the teacher, I think, in the head of the class. But yeah, yes, so Howard right. Hessman shows yes. up. By the yes. way, did you notice how every single time you think they have the situation under control, the bell rings to introduce a complication? Yeah. Like the next Every complica- time you hear the bell ring, that every time the doorbell rings, literally, it's a, it's a plot point. Oh, and the next complication is... The, tele- the singing telegram girl at the door who just is disposed of 
without ceremony at all. <laughs> By that time, right, it was but it's like after the, but it's after, bodies and the power, jumping like The flies. power goes out, right? <laughs> so the power goes out and everybody's looking around. Then the doorbell rings. Then you hear the singing telegram. You hear the gunshot. The door shuts. And everybody goes, what the hell was that? Poor Jane Wheatland. But I love, I love that after the doorbell rings and again, and Mrs. Peacock is like, nobody answer the door. If we can't afford any more dead bodies, they are piling <laughs> answer up. They'll be killed. They've got six dead bodies at the end coming, pulling up on the end here. And, um, this is when we really get to the, what I think is the most brilliant part of this movie which is yes. that end scene when we finally get to where we're going to wrap it all up and figure out what happened. And Tim Curry proceeds to uh, do this monologue, which is just racing and it's highly paced and it's physical and he runs from room to room. He says, and it's all him. It's all him. The, and and so-so is here. Else, everybody else Ms. is Peacock just... Was there. Yes, they're just following yeah. along. And, and, and you were there yes. and you were there and yes. you were there. And, you and if you remember this... And, and you got a letter, and you got a letter, and you Perfect got a letter. And everybody timing. else is doing. Everybody else is doing the standing jokes. The red herring the jokes. Late, <laughs> they're doing the yes. too late and the get on with it, and everybody else is doing those while Tim Curry is doing. I just think, like I, I was trying to remember, or, or I was trying to think, imagine what it was like to film that scene, and how many times they probably had to do it. And it probably was fun the first two times, and then it was very tedious the next five or six times. And probably by the the end of it, they were all just giddy. That's how I imagined it. You know, by sh- by take twelve or thirteen, they were like because I don't you. It just was frenetic, but brilliant, brilliant. But see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you watch that, it's really hard to find a place where the filmmaker could break it up. Yeah. It, it really does look like it was one long take with different camera angles. Yeah. It, it, there are a couple places you think, man, if you did really good editing, you could probably clip right in here. Yeah. But, but you don't like want to ruin the pace. Long, right. And yeah. that's the thing. If you had multiple cuts, that's um, – I know about how long that scene is, the, the, the rushing around scene. Because in the soundtrack, it's the best part of the soundtrack. It's a little da 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 da. And you're like, man, this music is wonderful. And what the hell is going on? And it's two minutes. It's it's two minutes, but it feels like ten because so much is happening. Because he's literally in two minutes recap the whole movie for you. I have in my notes here. This is where I have. Tim Curry is truly a talent. I mean, just, oh my God. yeah, it was, if you don't even, if you don't watch this movie, just go back and watch the last part of this movie. If you're a Tim, if you like, have liked Tim Curry at all in anything, I suggest you go back and, and go watch the last third of this movie with Tim Curry. He, this, this scene is incredible. He is wonderful. And as Jimmy said, all of the standing jokes are there. Um, and we come to the end and we, we find out that it is, uh, that the, that the killer is Miss Scarlet. And, uh, she just wants to, that every, that the, all of the communism stuff was 
a red herring. A red herring. And she just wants everyone's secrets, and she's going to sell them because that's capitalism. And uh, and then um, she proceeds to uh, go to the. What does she do? She leaves, and the chief is there. The chief of the FBI. No, 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 no. First, she pulls the gun. This is my favorite exchange. She she pulls the gun, and and he it, Wadsworth actually pulls off the line. Um, frankly, Scarlet, I don't give a damn. Mm-hmm. That was a great one. But yeah, he pulls the she pulls the gun, and he says there are no more bullets left in the gun. And she's like, oh, oh, come on. That's an old trick. And he's like, no, it's not. Look, there was one shot in the study, two in the chandelier, two at the lounge door, one's in the selling gear. And she's like, that's not six. By the way, this is something I quote all the time. It's just one plus two plus one plus one. And Wadsworth's like, no, even if you're right, that would be one plus one plus two plus one, not one plus two plus one plus one. And then she's like, okay, fine. One plus two plus one plus Shut up! Yeah, it's like who's on first. It just was that right. like yeah, it was really great. I loved it, and right. uh, uh, but she eventually is arrested by the FBI agent, and uh, who all, is uh, is the hippie, the hippie, uh, the hippie Howard Hessman, who is, is the, the Jesus FBI freak, he, the Jesus right. freaks the FBI agent. They did get a call off to the FBI. She's been arrested. Um, we find out that. Uh, no, I guess that's in the next. Anyway, I thought the movie was over, but this is how it could have happened. That's how it could have happened, and then we we start all over again, and Tim Curry takes us back. So that was just one ending, and now we have an alternate ending, and this is where we get that great line that probably could not be uh, put in a movie today, and a line that I laughed at. And a line wait, I'm, is that the line from the Scarlet to Mister Green? Yes. No, that's that doesn't happen yet. No, it's not. It's in the because second. The, it's not the second it's, one. It's the last one. The second one is when uh, oh. the second one is uh, the second one is no. Wait a minute, Miss Scarlet. The the second one, Mrs. Peacock, is the second one. Right. Where she gets away. Where they where they sing where they sing for she's a jolly good yes, fellow. Madeline Kahn starts improvising like a second, like a little yes. um, obligato, and yes. you're like, <laughs> and she goes outside, and he says, "The kingdom of heaven is at hand." <laughs> but that was just how it might and, have happened. And that was, yeah, that was Miss Peacock was one of the killers, and then they're like, "But here's how it really happened," and that's when they pull off the line that there is no way. Oh, no, there's no way. Um, we find out that Mr. Green, played by Michael McKean, um, is actually an FBI informant. He's actually been there the whole time as a plant. And he says, I'm a plant. And Miss Green and Miss Scarlet says. Miss Scarlet says, a plant? I thought they usually called guys like you a fruit. Oh! Oh! <laughs> But then he, but then he really, like he really just, <laughs> he he plays it off and he's great because it was like, you know, that was the joke, right? Yeah. But it wasn't. But as it turns out, that's not what happened. That's not. I mean, it, he really he wasn't. Right after that, yeah, yeah. he says, 
he says, ha ha, you know, that was funny. Because remember the recurring joke is that every time it comes up, yeah. Mr. Bean says, I didn't do it. Yes. Right? So at the end, he says, very funny, FBI, I the phone you. call with Jake Hoover was for me. He opens the door, all the cops pour in, right? And says, um, and by the way, I, I want to go back real quick. Yeah. Because this is the one where Wadsworth is the bad guy. Right. The last ending, Wadsworth as a bad guy, and basically says, here's what we'll do. We'll just leave. Nobody will say about this. I'll go on blackmailing you, right? And right. and one of the, like, Professor Plum or somebody like that says, you know, is it going to be some kind of cover-up? And what Wadsworth says, you know, of course, but the FBI, you know, yeah, yeah, of course there'll be some kind of cover-up. And Professor Plum says something like, wait, the FBI, would they be able to cover up a multiple murder? And Wadsworth says, yeah, why do you think it's run by a guy called Hoover? <laughs> but yeah, so so he does that. He opens, he uh, so, so he gets to the end, he shoots. He shoot, it's great because he's had a gun the whole time. <laughs> he shoots yeah. Wadsworth, kills him, and then that's when he says... Um, that's when he, he opens the door and says, I told you I didn't do it. Right? Yes. Yep. And as it turns out, Wadsworth, and this was the great part of that ending, as it turns out, Wadsworth wasn't Wadsworth in the third ending. That's right. That's right. He was Mr. Body. Mr. Body, and Mr. Body, who was killed earlier, was Wadsworth. Right. And so that's basically when he says, you know, I can tell you who did it. It was me in the hallway with the revolver. And then he turns around and goes, now I'm going to go home and have sex with my, my wife. wife. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just thought I loved that ending because every it was everyone. Like everybody killed somebody. So there was no, yeah. There was no like one person right everybody everybody killed somebody it was the uh, the kind of the uh the murder on the orient express kind of thing it was everybody killed somebody and wadsworth was just going to go back to you know uh blackmailing everybody and yeah and then which was your favorite ending Oh, the last one. The last one is it's it's so clever. And there's a point at which he's he's doing this and at and, and one point Miss Scarlet looks at him like, You're brilliant. Who are you? Yes. And she's just clearly so, you know, yeah, so she's delighted. By it. Yeah. No, I, I liked the last one. I even when we were leading up to it, I thought, Oh, there's six bodies. Like it would make total sense if everybody just killed somebody and well, they're, it's they're the all last guilty. One is the one. The last one is the one that really ties all the clues together. Yeah. But because have... do you remember remember when they were in the dining room? Yeah. Right? And they and, and the and the chair is empty. And they ask, is that is that empty chair for our host? Right? Is Mr. Body our host? And Wadsworth very clearly says no. Yeah. He's not our host. It's invited like one of you. Well, in the first two endings. That means that Wadsworth is lying to them. Oh, right. But if the third ending is the real ending, then Wadsworth is telling the truth. Mr. Body was invited as because he was Wadsworth. 
and that Wadsworth is really Mr. Body and he's the host. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that that yeah, the, the I looked up the Miss Scarlet line because it's, it was so wonderful because she looks at me and goes, "True." Because he, he he says, you know, Miss Scarlet, you you know, you went to the library where you, you know, hit the you killed the cop you've been bribing with the lead pipe. You know, is that true or false? And he goes, True. <laughs> Who are you? Perry Mason. Yes. She was so happy with that. I have to say that I liked that alternate ending where she was the murderer, but only because yeah. of that that exchange with Tim Curry. With the bullets and the gun, but, how many are left? It's so great. Two plus one plus one. I loved and, it. And it's a great part that when when the gun goes off, it clips the chandelier, and you know the chandelier is going to fall behind Martin Mall, and you just don't know when. Yeah, yeah. I and then of course that's the last shot we end on, which is the chandelier falling behind Martin Mull, and then him reacting to it, and then just freeze, and right. that's it. Which is really great. Which is really great because, um, it's really great because that kind of comes out of order. That comes at the end of the third, where there's another gunshot that clips the chandelier. The chandelier gets clipped. Yeah. I think in all the endings. Yeah. Yeah, I so, thought it was a strange so, note. But my favorite part of the Miss Scarlet part, the favorite part of that for me, was when the bullet goes off and Tim Curry goes, one plus one plus two. And, and he goes, one plus two plus one. And she's mouthing it along with him like, of course. You yes. <laughs> and I, I laughed. I have to say, there were a lot of moments that I just genuinely laughed at in this movie. So what did you, you're the newbie, what did you... What did you think about the movie? Did I mean did, did it did it surprise did it obviously you liked it but did you like like it or did you like I may have to go back and watch this again and kind of like it. I see that um I don't think it's a movie I would go back and purposefully watch again but like you say like if I ran across it on a Saturday afternoon I would for sure sit and finish and watch the whole thing. Um I I can see now why it's a cult classic because I think one of the one of the elements that makes up a good cult classic is something that's a eminently quotable and b very clever and it takes multiple viewings for people to really realize how clever it is i think that's why things like rocky horror picture show become cult classics i think things that uh or or the princess or bride the princess bride yes that's a, you know something that's Stuff an like excellent that. observation because yeah. i was thinking about some of the movies that i love that are cult classics mm -hmm. like Princess Bride, like uh, the Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the Eighth Dimension, mm -hmm. um, they're very quotable, and they are very—they're clever. They like multiple viewings let you see different things that you didn't before. Yes. I think it's a really good observation. I think those two things make—I think you're—I think you boiled it down. That's a really good observation. Well, thank you. Well, yeah, I do. <laughs> yes, I, I do think I do see why this is a cult classic. When I was watching it, I mean, my first thought was um, Soap Dish, which is another great slapstick um, yeah. comedy with a huge and amazing cast, um, which I think would have been more to the late 80s. It, would, it was before Christopher Reeves had his terrible accident because he was in it. Right. Um, and Nicolette Sheridan, I think, was in it, so it had to be late '80s. But that was the same kind of slapstick, 
um, comedy, like pay, like well timed, well paced, and and everything kind of rested on the pace of the of the film, and I yeah. and I liked that. I was trying to think of another. I was trying to think of a modern film that does this, and I, I you know the other one, one I thought of the other one I thought of because Soap Dish could have been a cult classic, yeah, but kind of wasn't. There's another one. Do you remember a movie called Noises Off? Noises Off, yes. Directed, by the way, by Peter yes. Bogdanovich. Is that what I was thinking of, Noises Off? Is Christopher Reeve in Noises Off? That yeah, might have been what I was thinking it's, it's of. The, yeah. it's, a, it's a traveling theater group. It's Christopher Reeve. It's Michael Caine. Yeah, it's that's Eric what I was... Denholm Elliott. It's it, Julie Haggerty from Airplane. Marilou... Well, you talk about people... So, Carol Burnett, Michael Caine, of course. Denholm Elliott from the Indiana Jones movies. Uh, Julie Haggerty from Airplane. Marilou Henner from Taxi. Yeah. Mark Lynn Baker from um, uh, the TV show with Balky Bartakamus. Um, um, Perfect Strangers. Perfect Strangers. Yeah, that's the one this I was thinking me. of. Noises Off. That's not yeah. Soap Dish. John Ritter. This is the movie. Yeah. John Ritter and Nicolette Sheridan. John Ritter. Yep. It, it was that kind of movie yes. that's super quick and super that's clever. That's exactly what I was thinking of. But gotcha. Noises yeah, but, Off. And that, was like, and that was 1992. Yes, and Noises Off was a stage play. So that was a stage play first, and then it became a screenplay. And that's kind of how I, as I said in the beginning of this podcast, how I looked at this movie when I was watching it. Like, oh, this looks like it, it feels like a stage play. And I think maybe I thought that because I was thinking of Noises Off. But I can't yeah. think of anything, you know, that I've seen in the 2000s that would compare to either of those films, but particularly clue like i usually ask people do you think this movie could get made today and while there were some inappropriate moments in this film it wasn't a quote inappropriate movie not on the level of like porkies or weekend of bernie's which we've done on this show but in in the artistry of it and the setup of it i was trying to think could could we do this today has it been done today in something else. Like I couldn't think of anything. Do you have anything in I I have one or two that I think might qualify. Yeah. If what we're talking about if what we're talking about is um now the one I'm thinking of, it wouldn't be a stage play, but you're talking about kind of generally an ensemble. You're not talking about a bunch of A-listers. No, but a yeah. movie a, a, yeah. very, a, a quotable movie. Yes. A, a very quotable movie. Um, with really solid actors that you'd almost call a great ensemble cast. Yeah. Um, I've got. Yeah, I just. I've got I've got one that I'm sure qualifies, and I'll, I'll go with the one that might maybe qualify. Yeah. But I think it was bigger. Galaxy Quest. Okay. But I think yeah. Galaxy Quest was set up that way. But that's, here's one yeah. that I think does qualify: Dodgeball. Dodgeball. Okay. Yeah, I guess you're right. Like, but I, I'm kind of thinking of this idea of like one location, entrances and exits, quick pace. uh, Yeah, and see, the only thing that the only thing that doesn't get me is dodgeball has more than one location. Yeah, but the the dialogue is super snappy. The physical comedy is on point. Yeah, the ensemble the ensemble cast is brilliantly assembled it's really well assembled everybody is exactly the right spot all of them um 
And if it had taken place in just one place, I think it would definitely... It, it, it takes place over several. I'm trying to think of... Yeah, I just don't... I just don't I'll have tell any you the other ideas. I, think is, I tell you the movie that I think is really kind of the, the, the exemplar, the one kind of the tradition that, that all these other movies come out of mm -hmm. is Arsenic and Old Lace. Well, yeah. Yeah. I think that's the one that, like, that's the one that, like, everything else flows from. But, but we're not making that today. We're not making those no. movies in 2018. And see, this is what this is, and, and this is something that I don't understand, because from a production point of view, um, and you can speak to this more because you are a, in fact, a bona fide, experienced movie director. I am patting myself um, on the back right I, now. Adjusting your beret jauntily. <laughs> um, I want to look something up because um, a movie like that. And by the way, um, they're going to try to remake this movie. Yeah, I did hear that with with Ryan Reynolds, and I don't. And 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 and, and, and here's why it's going to fail. Mm -hmm. um, because they want to make it like an international murder mystery yeah and that um all right clue this was weird clue apparently at the box office um when it opened uh didn't cover its um didn't cover its budget but Not for clue, well with all the well it, it, it came apparently according to what i'm seeing here it made 14.6 in that's, the box office that's gross domestic that's right it's, it's it's budget its budget was fifteen million. Yeah, so it still never ha it still hasn't made up its But imagine but imagine a fifteen million dollar movie today. You well, could yeah. make a movie like this for fifteen you could make a movie like this for ten million. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you bring up a really good point, Jimmy. And I think that this is something that um hopefully we'll start to see as the studio system begins to fail, which is this idea, you know, there, we talk about it a lot on this show. We don't really have real bona fide movie stars anymore. Like there used to be, like in the 80s and 90s, you went to see the new, the Sly Stallone movie. You went to see the Tom Cruise movie. You went to see, you know, the Harrison Ford. Yeah, Harrison Ford, the Bruce Willis. That's how you sold yeah. those movies. You sold those movies with these stars in them, and that's what you were going to see. But because of all of the different media streams these days, we don't really have the same kind of celebrity draw. And so studios are left trying to catch up to what viewers want. And that's kind of why we're getting all these rehashed, you know, remakes and reboots because, because they at least know that they'll be able to bank on the nostalgia dollars and, right. they're, and they're afraid to take risks. But something like this, you're right, Jimmy, you put, 10 million 15 million dollars like look at like the success of like get out or quiet place you put just a few million dollars into a production like that something that's original you don't go with the big names you just go with a cast that works well together and you and, write and something the writing it's the writing just yes. get get someone who's Yes. Work the script and write it and be clever. Write something and be useful. Yes. You know something? I, I'm thinking of a movie like um Oh, what was it? Gosford Park? Yes. That's what I was thinking about when I was watching this. That's maybe as close to Gosford Park. Yes. And you, Gosford you Park get, was like two thousand 
yeah. six or something. Yeah, but you get you get yeah. it, and the strength of Clue was the writing and then putting that writing. And I have said this before: the object of a writer in a movie, right? The object of a person who writes a screenplay is, and this is something that um that um. Oh gosh, I've gone blank in his name. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, Joss Whedon. Joss Whedon. Mm-hmm. The thing that Joss Whedon does well, though, I think Joss Whedon can get way too cute sometimes. Yes. What the thing Joss Whedon does better than just about anybody writing scripts is he puts the dialogue in his actor's wheelhouse. Yeah. He lets them deliver the lines that they're good at delivering. So. If you watch Clue, Mull's lines are different from Christopher Lloyd's lines, are different from um, uh, everybody else. Everybody, everybody has lines that are kind of not just for their character, but for them as an actor. Well, so and- you give them, so you give them the lines that they can really just knock out of the park. But that's what. You can do that for the cheap, but you've got to have really... You have to have you've writers, got to care yes. about, You've got to care about that. You've got to put some effort. This is my problem. Bounce this, it. This is my problem with modern comedy is that a lot of times, too many times, instead of writing a good script, they um, write the bones of the film and then they just tell... Jokes. Yes, they just tell the actress, like, if, like for the last couple of Mel- Melissa McCarthy movies I've seen or Amy Schumer movies, it's just them being them and just like, oh, um, be awkward Amy Schumer. And then that's funny. Like, they haven't written anything for her. It's just her, as you say, making fart jokes or making vagina jokes or whatever. Right. It, and, in but the case of nothing, Melissa McCarthy, who yeah. I think is very talented. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Her- Hurt, but the but the last few movies, including Ghostbusters. Oh yeah, Ghostbusters is another example. Just yes. it's basically it. Her jokes are one of two things. Her, she's fat, or uh, she's uh, yep. fat, yep. or she's clumsy. And yep. I'll tell you something else. At the risk of at the risk of being inappropriate myself. Uh huh. Go for it. Um. Can somebody in Hollywood write a role for a black comedian? especially a woman that does not just involve them being the loud hey girl person. Uh-huh. <laughs> because you know something? Leslie uh-huh. Jones is wicked talented. She really is. But literally all they give her to do is hey. No, because those, she, I'll tell you why. That? I she's know. funny. She's really funny and she's talented. She may, she may be developing some things right now. I'll, I'll tell you what, the problem is, is that traditionally there haven't been black female writers in Hollywood. So white people don't know how to write roles for, they don't know how to write those roles because a lot, the, the truth is, is that as a black American, you're more likely to know white people more intimately than vice versa. That's just yeah. how it is. I, so it's hard yeah. for white people to write for black people. So you either need to write, just write the parts, just write good parts and let the actors fill them, you know, regardless of their race and let the actors bring their personality See, to it or bring I, in this, Kira, black female writers. If Here's the thing. If, if I'm writing a screenplay, right, and, and Leslie Jones is in my movie, um, I'm going to write the character. And then I'm going to bring Leslie Jones in and go, look, 
I know that this is maybe close, but I need you to look this over with it, and I need you to I need you to fix my problems. Because I know they're going to be problems. I'm just not sure where they are. But that was the problem with Ghostbusters. Let, is her, that, let her act them. It's, it's Paul Feig thought he knew what everybody that was. was the point. Yeah, he just, just he didn't write anything. He was just like, uh, you guys, you're, and it, then it was just for, I heard somebody describe this perfectly about Ghostbusters. Somebody described it as, somebody said, um, you can't all be, who was Bill Murray's character? Um you can't all be Bill Murray, like Bill Murray's doctor, right. whatever in the original Ghostbusters. You can't right. all have four Bill Murray's in your movie. And the Ghostbusters right. remake was four Bill Murray's and it just wasn't funny. And they didn't write anything for the women. They were like, Kristen Wiig, you're the awkward, funny one. Um, you just be awkward and funny. And Melissa McCarthy, you're and the we'll fat, you funny in, we'll one. Hit you in the, yeah. We'll hit one of you in the face with slime and yeah. Leslie Jones can go, can go, uh, Oh no, he didn't. Yes, and she can do her chicken neck thing, and then yeah, it just that's what it is now. And see, here's the weird thing though, because in the original Ghostbusters, right, you have the the black Ghostbuster, you have Winston, right? The extra, the extra. But here, but here's the thing: everybody calls him the extra. Here's the thing: he number one, he gets to deliver one of the best lines in the movie, bar none. He gets one of the best lines in the movie, but he is the one who actually explains what's going on. There's a, there's a scene where he and Dan Aykroyd are in the car together, right? Uh-huh. And he says, have you ever stopped to consider that maybe the, that this really is the end times? Uh, but he didn't ever get billed, you know. That he, was the thing. He didn't no, no, get he top didn't. What I'm saying is like he didn't get billed. But yeah. in but in the movie, that's a super important role. And I'm sorry, when he stands, Your Honor, since I've started working with these guys, I <laughs> am I allowed to cuss? Yeah. Is it uh, Your Honor? Since I have started working here, I have seen shit that would turn you white. It is the. It is one of the like five best lines in the whole movie yeah. when he's in the mayor's office and he says that to the mayor well, and the mayor's white. But, but what I'm saying is Leslie Jones could have had a role like that. This is one of the things you need is like not need good writers needs to run around and be Chris Tucker. Yeah. All right. Right. Uh, look, Chris Tucker was really funny as the screamy guy in the fifth element. Uh huh. Um, but he shouldn't be that guy in every frick. He basically, he was that he was that guy in the movies with Jackie Chan. He's but again, he's that's what allowed ha- Chris Rock. That's but, what's happened in the past when we've only allowed white people to write the movies that we see at the box office. So I do see that changing. I mean, you know, we, yeah. now you get Jordan Peele is already contracted for two films that he's written that he's writing. You know, yeah. so that's good. Uh, John Krasinski's got a sequel to. Um, the Quiet Place, and he's already contracted for a couple other things. So we're starting to see this resurgence of original um, work. But I think you're where this this conversation started, Jimmy. I think your instinct about you know studios and and funders backing you know not having to put a lot of money into a decent cast 
that doesn't cost you fifty million dollars and do right. a movie let's, like this. Let, instead of spending a hundred, instead of spending a hundred billion dollars, and then, but but I also I also want to take a, a, another thing here too because this is another thing that happens. Um, you'll take a, a, a hundred a hundred million dollar blockbuster. And give it to someone who's only ever directed like two movies with like a right. combined budget of fifteen million. Uh huh. Um, this is look. This is what happens. Ava this DuVernay. is what happened with the yeah uh, the guy <laughs> who did that, the guy yeah her uh, with the a wrinkle in time yeah um the guy who did uh, the Godzilla movie oh um, um I can't remember now yeah he, he he had a couple other the thing about Jonathan Lynn is that Jonathan Lynn had some experience before he did clue Mm -hmm. as as a director um clue well clue was his first clue was the first thing he directed right clue was his first movie he would he went on by the way to do uh my cousin Vinny. another great movie yes but he had been a writer um mostly tv series but some screenplay so he had been a working writer for TV series since 1971, so he had some cred behind him. He knew Absolutely, he yeah. knew how he knew how to do dialogue. He knew how to write for people, and he had some cred before they gave him a 15 million dollar movie. Look, take a hundred million dollars for your blockbuster and make 10 10 million dollar movies. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I agree. And, the, sure, and people and sure are eating director. it up. This is what. This is what Netflix is doing. And I think yes. if Netflix is smart, what they'll be able to do is bring in a bunch of directors and a bunch of writers and take some risks, take some chances, but you're not spending a ton of money, all things considered, and see who does well. Give people a chance to learn, a chance to work with different actors. Build Essentially build your own it might like be, studio yeah. system like we had in the 40s and 50s. Where a guy like John Ford worked a lot of small films before he got She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, or you know, the big one, the and big it, western. It might be too late for Netflix because now Netflix has gone from being, you know, the indie startup to the hardest studio in town to get into. But I would, yeah, but they've I got a lot of different stuff. They I mean, do, they, they, but they've got so much but money. They do, they but all that money is going to major stars who already have projects yeah. in the works. The where where that stuff is happening right now actually is over at Amazon, which still has an open submission process. So Amazon and Amazon did um what's the one that Casey Affleck just won the Oscar for? Uh Manchester Oh yeah, Manchester by the Sea. By the Sea. You know, that's a small, low budget film. Um and won an Oscar. So they're doing that kind of work. And I and I look forward to seeing you know, I think you're right. I look forward to seeing more of that. We, we've got to start wrapping it up here because we've been going on yes, for ma'am. a while. It's been really a blast. And I'm thank you for suggesting this movie. I'm so glad I watched it. It was great. It really wasn't that inappropriate, but it was a great movie. And I think people would have fun watching it. Some fun facts that we've already said. Um, this budget was $15 million. Um, it did open at two million, and it's grossed so far. As far as I can tell, fourteen million dollars. Now it's got a huge uh, VHS and DVD following, so it's just become a cult classic. Uh, the original, some of the original casting, Carrie Fisher was actually set to play Miss Scarlet, 
And unfortunately, really? yes, she was contracted to play Miss Scarlet. And unfortunately, she ended up in rehab four days before Oof. filming started. I know. And that is so heartbreaking considering how her life ended. It, so it she is, but, struggled her but whole as life. the movie goes, Leslie and Warren turned out to be perfect. She was great. I, I could She's, have seen Carrie Fisher in that role, too. It would have been different, but I think... She could have pulled it off. She was a great comedic I actress. Seen, I, I would have seen. I could have seen Carrie Fisher in, as so in Madeline Kahn's role. Yeah, I mean, she. Yeah, I. I it wasn't like a what kind of moment for me, but I do think right. that Leslie Ann Warren, turned it. It worked out for the best. Um, it was. Yeah. Uh, now to play Yvette, yeah. some of the other names that were on the docket to play the the maid Yvette were Jennifer Jason Lee. Debbie mm-hmm. Moore and mm-hmm. Madonna. Um, lots of lots of boobs. Lots of boobs. I don't know how I would have felt. You know, if you put Madonna in that role in 1985, it becomes a Madonna movie. Right. Exactly. Yeah. She can't. She. There's no way no. she can play. She can't play like a side role. There's just no way. No. There's no way. Not in 1985. For sure. And could you could you imagine Madonna faking a? I mean, she fakes a British accent really well. <laughs> but could you imagine her faking no. a French accent? No, she's a terrible actress. She tried. Well, but can I can I also can I say the one thing about Colleen Camp though? Yeah, yeah. It is it is not obvious until you really start paying attention to her how terrible her French accent is. Right, but it doesn't it need is, to be good. <laughs> Yeah, it is, but it is obviously it is like so obviously she is. But I was frightened. <laughs> like, oh, you're like you're like Inspector Clouseau. You're like the female Peter Sellers. What are you it was doing? great. I loved it. It was great. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. I, it was great. Well, so some you of liked the it? I love I the clue I too, the clueing. We we I really loved it, and I don't want them to remake this movie, but I know 20, that they will. Here, here we go. Yeah, here we go. Here, here's how I do it. Here's how I do it. Here's how, here's here's how it happens. Um, you remake it, and you say, forty years later, the children of the people at that faded mansion return. And it's a new clue with the kids, like horrible things have been happening. And you make it like scream. like a dark, gritty. Oh yeah, no, no, no God, yeah, no. I hate that. <laughs> Everything is dark and gritty. The ar- the freaking Archies are dark and gritty. Oh, yes, Every- lost Every- in space is dark. dark and gritty. How do you do dark and gritty? Lost in space for God's sake. Oh uh, well, Batman. Christopher Nolan did this to us, which I'm not complaining because I love the Nolan Batmans. But this is all Christopher Nolan's fault. I blame I blame yeah. the, the Superman, um, the dark and gritty Superman. Oh, do well. you? Okay. Totally. Everything's everything's dark and gritty. But no, I think you make it. You do the same kind of comedy, but you do a you a, you do it a little differently. Like literally, I would start like almost setting it up, like almost setting it up, kind of like, um, I know what you did last summer. Mm-hmm. That kind of setup. Mm-hmm. And then going into the weird mad cappery because like, all right, Wadsworth is dead. Everyone else goes in, but there was a cover up and no one really knows the truth. And everybody's getting together to learn the truth. And it, and it starts out very somber, but, and then, and then when the humor comes, it starts really small and it just snowballs till at the end it is 
shut. It's like blazing saddles at the end. It's it, but inside the mansion. That's what I would do. I'd remake it. I would remake it. Let everybody think it was going to be this dark, gritty remake, and then at the end, it's just you know. Yeah. I don't know. You, you like, get you, you get Brad Pitt to be Mister Body or somebody yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, then you just and yeah, then you just like yeah. kill him in the first five minutes. Yeah, yeah. I I guess it's hard to imagine anyone even getting close to what well, this I guess is. We'll have but to, uh, we'll, we'll I guess have we're gonna to, find out. Yeah. We're, we'll just we'll have to adapt some new board game. I. Yeah, I mean, I, I would start we, working we did, on a script. We did Battleship. Boggle, boggle, boggle the movie, Scrabble boggle the movie, the movie. <laughs> right, Scrabble the movie, uh, Pictionary the movie. Yeah, yeah. no, so I Pictionary guess you're right. the movie would be one of those mass. It would be like seven, but as a board game. Oh yeah, because you can't play Pictionary without actually ending relationships. I get that's actually a good idea. Pictionary the movie as a horror movie. I love it. <laughs> Pitch it. We're I feel gonna, like the seven, the seven of board game movies. I, I will personally really fund dark that and film. then with someone's head in a box. I will personally fund that film, um, just to give our audience an idea of what this movie was up against that year. That same time of year that it came out, it came out against Rocky Four, Spies Like Us, The Color Purple. And Jewel of the Nile, which was the sequel to Romancing the Stone. Um, so huge blockbuster movies. It really didn't have a fair chance at the box office, but it's found a second life as a cult classic. And uh, I hope that our How Inappropriate listeners who have not seen the movie before they listen to this podcast, I hope you'll go back, watch the movie, and become fans. You can still find screeners of Clue all around the country. People do it all the time. They they rent movie theaters. They have, like, Clue nights at bars. It's, do it's, they? I yeah. would love to you go to one You should look it up. Yeah, I was oh, looking at it. Yeah, people do it all hey, the time. Hey, that is, a, that is, a, that is a, a Phantom Sway. The, the first time we have, like, a Phantom Sway meeting, uh-huh. we'll do a Clue screener, and we'll all watch Clue. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's got, like, that kind of cult following. So it's that kind of thing you can go watch and have fun with at a bar and – Really enjoy. Um, it's so cool. It's great. Yeah, thanks for for um, and bringing this movie to us, Jimmy. Tell us a little bit about where people can find you and what you're doing um, at Phantom Sway and other places. Uh, tell us more about where we can look up your work. Uh, mostly, you can mostly you can find me on the web at jimorama.com. It's uh, it's it's there's a Jim and there's an Orama of Jim. So that's that's where nice. I am, and mostly. Mostly what you're going to find there is our uh, short stories. I write uh, – I'm, I'm a writer. I write a lot of short stories. Um, I have a couple ideas that I think I'm going to be able to pull up mid-year that you will actually be able to see more of my work in more of a bookish sort of form. Um, but, yeah, jimarama.com. You can look me up on Facebook where I am um, fond of posting conversations uh, that I have between Facebook and I, and uh, and then at Phantom Sway, where I I, I post like I, I write podcast posts and uh, and I, I write uh, I do the Friday Is fiction Friday prop, fiction? which it's one of my I favorite do the Friday things. Fiction prop, it's yep. awesome. I love it. Um, I, I love doing that, and and uh, there's gonna there are gonna be more podcasts. There's gonna be more writing. It's 
and as long as you know Kira doesn't fire me, I'm just going to be in the kind of the middle of it, trying to kind of muck around and finding out stuff that you guys like, and then giving you more of it. So if you see something on Phantom Sway that you like, say so in the comments so that we know what works. That's and then we could do more of it. Awesome. Yes, I love Friday Fiction. I. I uh, pub it at the end of every podcast, so I'm going to do it again on this podcast. Um, don't forget that we've got Friday Fiction every Friday on Phantom Sway. Uh, that is the 100-word fiction challenge. You may think, 100 words about a picture? How hard can it be? Oh, it's <laughs> a challenge to write a 100-word story about a picture, but I have so much fun doing it. I was traveling to London last week, so I didn't get in on the fun. I mean, this week I'm just recovering. But you don't have to. If you don't catch it on Friday, you can still, you know, uh, post something. Yeah, do it over the it. weekend. Yeah. Just we don't post some Friday. It's not like we're going to yeah. come to your house. We're right. not going to like lock you. Up wrote anything. this on Wednesday. This is, How this dare is, you? You are a fraudulent <laughs> Friday fictioner. This was Wednesday words. Fake right. news. <laughs> none of this. None of that's going to happen. So if no. you find a picture, you're like. I want to write a hundred word story. Give it a shot. It's fun. You can do it. I mean, what? We don't close the comment section. You just do it. It's awesome. And if you think of yourself as a writer or a wannabe writer, it's a really great exercise um, in just stretching your brain and stretching your your creativity. So I will tell you this. I will tell you this, Kira. Yes. Doing, doing, someone else had started a Friday fiction. And the very first one we did, I kind of explained where it came from. Mm -hmm. And doing those for myself actually relit the fire and it was a big fire i had always wanted to be a writer but i had kind of let the dream die mm-hmm. i just kind of stopped it out doing those friday fictions got me thinking you know something i really can do this i really can be a writer yes and it relit the dream so if you ever thought yeah i could be a writer and then like it's like real life just caught up with you do Friday fiction. Yeah, start there. Shot. It's like yeah. going to light you right back up. I agree. Shot. I agree. One hundred percent. Very well yes. said, Jimmy. Of course, you can find me, Kira Allen, at Kira Creates on Twitter. You can find um, all of our stuff that's going on over at Phantom Sway. Uh, of course, you can uh, check out. Um, how inappropriate on iTunes. We're on Spotify now. Go uh, like us and rate us on iTunes. That that helps a lot. We appreciate yes. your listens. Um, we appreciate you keeping up with the page. Like us on the Facebook. Uh, follow us on the Twitters at HiPods, H-I-Pods. And again, uh, thank you to my very special guest, Jimmy Vice. Thank you to the makers of Clue. And thank you to you listeners. We will see you next time on How Inappropriate. Phantom Sway. We make stuff you'll love. Seriously, check us out. PhantomSway.com